The Athletic. Hello everybody, a happy new year to you and welcome to The View from the Lane, the Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm Danny Kelly and joining me for the first show of 2022, we had a little break over Christmas, why wouldn't we, are The Athletic's Jack Pitbrook and Charlie Eccleshare. Good morning, gents. Since we last gathered, Spurs have played three times over Christmas, very briefly. They won 3-0 at home on Boxing Day against Crystal Palace, had a 1-1 draw with Southampton down on the south coast, and then in the last minute managed to beat Watford by a goal to nil. So seven points from those three games. I'll ask you two questions, uh, Jack and Charlie. Seven points from nine, is that a good return? And seven points from nine, does that reflect how Spurs played over the Christmas period? Charlie? Yeah, I think seven points is about fair, though I'd probably flip them and say, if you were going on what was merited, you'd probably say the Southampton game, they did more to win in many ways, in the Watford game. I don't think they could have had many complaints if they'd drawn that game with Watford, but ditto if they'd beaten Southampton, given that ridiculous offside, the disallowed goal. I don't think Saints could have had too many complaints if Spurs had won that day. So it's probably about fair as a whole, yeah. Um, and whether those are that's a good set of results, I think it's okay given it was such a good weekend, the one just gone, with United and Arsenal both losing, um, and Spurs are suddenly in a really strong position. And I think that's it's such a zero sum game at this point that you know if you'd offered them you know gaining gaining points on both of those teams that they're in competition with over the Christmas period, I'm sure they would have taken that. Yeah, so I was at the Watford and Southampton games. I think I'd probably agree with Charlie. I thought Spurs played better against Southampton than they did against Watford. You know, they created chances against Southampton. Southampton were pretty good and aggressive. Uh, obviously, they got you know scored two good goals that were not given. Was against Watford. I thought Spurs were pretty bad, to be honest. They, I mean, they, I think they only really made two real chances. There was the one where where Skip nicked the ball off Imran Loser and Kane put it just wide, and then there was that one out of absolutely nowhere where Lucas Moura put the ball through to Son and Backman made a great reflex. That was a good stop, that, wasn't he? Yeah, really good was, save. Yeah, I, I was watching that game thinking it's not really happening, is it? Like Spurs are just like what you know, Watford basically did a job on Spurs and neutralised them and. So much of the and the big talking point after the game was, can this team set up the way they are, create enough chances against teams that defend deep? Because, you know, the way the game was going, Danny, is that the ball would go out to Emerson Royale every time, who Watford were very relaxed about letting him get the ball. Royale is not very incisive when it comes to his crossing. And Watford just headed the ball away. So Oh, no, no, no. Watford, clearly, they had a tactical plan which was to make the ball go to Spurs' right-hand side, yeah. where neither Davidson Sanchez, bless him, who had a decent game, or Emerson Royal are very good with the ball at their feet, or at least not as good as what is now the absolute standard in the Premier League. They double-marked Reguillon, who himself, let's be fair, um, is, is no Roberto Carlos, but uh, but they, that, that's where the, the, the threat could have come from. They double-banked him and said, go on, then beat us. And let's be, let's be honest about it. A Sanchez goal from a corner is an unusual thing. So in many ways, it's almost, to use that horrible phrase, tactical masterclass by Claudio Ranieri. Because they Mm. blunted Spurs and then got the one chance that you you would think, um, was it it Sanchez who came across and made the the recovery tackle from from Dyer's mistake? Well, there was the penalty one as well that 
you know, for in the interest of balance, I guess we yeah. should say that Spurs were unlucky on yes. against Southampton. I think they got lucky with that Larice one. I think overall, I probably agree with Charlie's assessment on the bigger question, which is that seven points from nine is a pretty good haul in the circumstances. You know, yep. everyone's tired. The play, half the team have just had COVID. It's a pretty difficult time to be playing football. Uh, so seven points from nine is good. Uh, on the other, on the other question of the performances, not great. Like good against Palace, not probably going in the wrong direction since then. But you're not guaranteed to play well at this time of year, are you? It's, it's time of year which is really about getting points on the board. What I think is really interesting at the moment with Tottenham is it feels when when you're in a run of kind of grinding out points and you're not you're not playing that well, but the results are still good, especially when it's against not so good teams that can broadly go one of two ways you know that we're often told that that's the sign of a good team that they win when they're not playing well and if that gives way to playing well and winning games then that's shown to be the case the worry I guess would be that the war we've seen warning signs here haven't we as Jack says that they have struggled to break down these teams and you then wonder I mean Conte is really interesting I was looking at this the he's being justifiably and, and rightly lauded for the impact he's had it's been fantastic and they've won five drawn what is it one five drawn three of his eight games just looking at those games I don't think that's that much better than par from expectations I mean they've played Everton away which they drew could have gone either way yeah could have gone either way but I mean beforehand you'd say a yeah, point yeah. is probably par you wouldn't be saying sure. we should absolutely go and win that game so that's fine Leeds uh an injury ravaged Leeds team let's be honest who played Spurs off the park in the first half but they beat them you'd expect to beat them Norwich and Brentford at home Palace, all those games that they won, you'd, you'd probably be saying we shouldn't be dropping points here. Liverpool, I think, is probably the bonus that's point. That's the outstanding result, isn't it? Uh, and performance. And performance, yeah, yeah. I think that's a real bonus point because you'd probably be saying par there is a loss. And then Saints and Watford, it depends how optimistic you are. You'd say either four or six points from them. So he, so he's, the results have he's been... Had a good run, he's had a good run of fixtures. He has. And of course, see, the payback for that is January, isn't it? Take more, more come out of it and they play the Champions of Europe three times in four matches and then they have a, a North London derby. But you'd rather have it that way around if you're a new manager. You want the easy fixture, easier looking fixtures first. And then, totally. Then you hit this group of matches, at least with the players knowing what it's like to gather up a few wins. Yeah, and I think it's been so important that while he's been getting his ideas across, like that Leeds game was so clearly a game that they were so ragged and it was basically a game they won through sheer force of will. So yeah, the hope is that they, once they hit their stride, will start their performances will improve and the results will remain as good. But it will be very interesting to see how they do, as you say, with you know with these games against especially Chelsea, with the, the quality of opposition stepping up. Because also he's, there's been a weird run of not that many away games because of the cancellations, obviously until Southampton and Watford, but I think it's still five home, three away in that run. They haven't had like a, you know, a big testing away game. Not, you know, not even what would be, you know, like a Leicester away, something like that, mm-hmm. that I think would have been really interesting and revealing. They haven't got to play yet. So yeah, we'll see. It will be very, yeah, very interesting to see how, how, um, how they do in these tougher games. Jack, back to the performances. Um, I mean, the game against Watford, we're all in agreement, uh, was a struggle for Spurs. The person who seems to be getting the blame for the struggle, and we immediately went to his name there again, was Emerson Royal. It, it, it wasn't just Emerson, was it, on the on the day, Jack? Well, yes and no. I mean, Emerson, I mean, the way that Tottenham were, were geared up to play in that game, which obviously Watford had an influence as well in terms of their tactics, was that the ball kept going out to Emerson for reasons that we've just talked about. Watford yeah. were doubling up on regular on the other side. 
But Tottenham didn't have to try to play that way. They could have tried something different. And this is really, I think, probably the big question over the second half of the season is, are Tottenham going to try to play with the creative midfielder or not? Because so far, I think it's pretty clear that Conte's default team is a 3-4-3 with Hoiberg and Skip in the middle and no creative midfielder. That said, he has brought, you know, Winks has started a few games, played well against Liverpool, had some good moments against Southampton. So it might well be that Winks will start coming in more and then they'll be able to play in a slightly different way. But whether or not Ndombele or Celso or even Deli will come in and play as another creative player and maybe they'll go, they'll drop Lucas and go to a 3-5-2... That is the big question. And I mean, right, frankly, none of us have the answer at the moment. I am increasingly pessimistic about Ndombele's future at the club, given that uh, in both the Saints and Watford away games, Brian Gill was brought on ahead of him from the bench. Uh, we yep. asked Conte about this in his press conference last week, and he didn't really give any assurances at all about being positive about Ndombele's future or rating him or saying... In fact, he went... That, that, that bizarre answer, admittedly he's answering in a second language. Yeah, so Conte was asked, um, what do you see as Ndombele's role at the club? And his answer was, he is a midfielder, he is a <laughs> midfielder. Now that might... I don't know whether that's a kind of faint, very, very faint praise or it's just saying as little as possible or he's unwilling to say anything positive. But then, you know, after this I asked him, well, Ndombele wants to leave last year. Does he want to leave? Do you think he might leave in the January transfer window? And Conte said, oh, you know, it's not the right time to talk about this. I've got to have a meeting with the club to talk about ins and outs, and it wouldn't be the right time to speculate on this. And then a second later, I asked him about, you know, Harry Winks has been doing well, hasn't he? And he said, oh, yeah, Wink, Winks will definitely be staying. Hmm. So it's obviously like he he's not completely unable to say which players, which kind of midfielders who have been on the fringe are going to stay in January or not. So I'm pessimistic about Ndombele. Le Celso might be slightly different because... I mean, Ndombele's been fit recently. That's the thing. Like, it's not that he doesn't think Ndombele's fit. Ndombele is fit. He's just not in the team. Whereas Lo Celso has been injured. And yet, it was Lo Celso has, mm-hmm. you know, came on against Watford. And it might be, and this is slightly speculation on my part, but it might be that Lo Celso is actually closer to what Conte wants in Ndombele. And maybe Lo Celso will play a bigger part in the second half of the season. I agree with that. Yeah, I think he... I'd certainly feel... At this point, I mean... I'm, I'm always wary of saying this because it does change really quickly. And, you know, we were saying Harry Winks was gone. I mean, how many, we've said that probably that's been said many times over the last couple of years. And now it seems like he's done well and he's worked his way into Conte's plans. But at the moment, I, I do feel like the Celso has a, is, is further, is ahead of a non Um And yeah, I, I don't know. He, 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 he has some of the qualities I think Conte will really like. And it will be interesting just more broadly on this question of where does the creativity come from? Does it come from the flanks or does it come from the midfield? Obviously, at, at Chelsea, you had someone like Cesc Fabregas as well as those wing backs. Liverpool are a team who, even when they were accumulating close to 100 points but didn't win the league, there was this whole thing about, well, they have no creativity in central midfield. It all comes from their fullbacks, which is fine when you've got like properly elite fullbacks. And, you know, this is why Spurs want to sign a right wing back who's more attacking. Royal is not great going forward that's been evident since he joined so yeah that that is a big decision but Lo Celso could in theory the idea of him you know he has you'd think he could play in a central midfield too with a back three behind them reasonably comfortably you know he you don't need to be as defensive when you're a two playing in front of a back three mm-hmm. but that's the theory in theory but and we know he's got that tenacity I mean he loves going yeah. around um, you know leaving one in on people and he offers a bit more he's no Lamella he's no Lamella but he's the closest thing Spurs currently have to Lamella I mean yeah. he he loves a foul loves needling <laughs> people and similarly similar to Lamella apart from the one red card he got uh, in, in the North London derby last season he's good at getting away with it as well 
One point I want to pick up on from what Charlie said, you know, there's a bit of a pattern, which is Conte not being immediately enamoured with a creative midfielder and then taking maybe half a season to get him into the team. So when Conte showed up at Chelsea in 2016, he didn't really play Fabregas at the start. It was initially, I think, what, Matic and Kante in the middle. And it basically took him half a season of Fabregas learning what Conte expected from him and proving to Conte that he could do it before Conte started regularly picking Fabregas. And then they were a slightly different team who could play in a different way once Fabregas was in the team. Similarly, Inter Milan, it took Ericsson, as we know, like quite yeah. a while to settle into what Conte wanted because, Conte, you know, because Conte's pl- football is so specific in terms of what he tells every individual to pl- player to do, he's not really that... He doesn't really want, like, a creative number 10 who makes it up as he goes along. He wants a number 10 who is able to execute his specific plans on the pitch. And once once Ericsson learned what Conte wanted him to do, he became an important part of the inter-team. And that's why I think there is some hope for, whether it's Winks or Lacelso or even, even possibly Ndombele, I think there is some hope for these guys because there is a history of Conte taking a while to integrate a player like that into his team. And that's why I do think it might change in the second half of the season. Yeah, and I hear what I hear what you're saying, and I think you're both being extremely reasonable. I mean, let me put an unreasonable point of view to you, <laughs> um, and that is this: that uh, I think right now, and I have to. And Charlie is right to say it, it can all change, but I think right now, if Spurs got offers that suited Spurs for Ndombele, Lascelles, and Ali, they'd let them all go. Oh, I think that's true, but, but yeah, but, I'd, I'd agree. I'd agree yeah. with that. But that's I mean, a then, massive. They wanted if. to sell, they oh, wanted to sell Ndombele it, in the summer. Danny, but they, but like nobody would come up with appropriate money. And equally, I think they would, if a club somewhere in the world would offer, let's say, I don't know, 40, 50 million quid for Deli Ali, I'm sure they'd take it. But they're, but they're not going to get 15, never yeah. mind no, 50. No, of course not. Yeah. Of, of course yeah. not. But the point is that if, the point isn't that Tottenham are desperate to keep these players, whatever happens. The no. point is that in the current market, no one is going to offer the, the kind of money that would be acceptable to Tottenham to sell them. So they're kind of, Stuck with them a little bit, I think, unless something sure. dramatic happens. I think they'd take a... They, they'd, I mean, I know we've been in this position before, but that was in a pre-COVID world. I mean, they'd have to... I mean, like with Ndom, I think Ndombele is one of the most pre-COVID signings. Imagine a six-year deal on 200 grand a week. Mm. That is a... Con- you are not... You are locking yourself in to that and a fee of, you know, around 50 million pounds. I mean, that is just... It's genuinely unimaginable, that sort of thing now. And so they are in a position... I mean, I don't know. I don't know what fee they're going to... If, even if they could get someone to each year take his wages off their books up until 2025 when, when his contract expires. Wow. I, I Because I just don't see... Because they, a buying club has all the power in a way. They know that Spurs don't really want this player and that getting getting his wages off the books would would still be a pretty substantial saving for them. So I don't think that any team's going to come in with much of a bid but between now and then. And each year, the value depreciates even more. Because Conte is trying to establish his system, he has, he has rotated rather less than the other managers during this period. So by the second half against Watford, I thought the players looked... I don't know what leggy means. It's just a word people use. Mm. Unqualified medical opinion, they looked leggy. I just thought they looked a little bit tired and jaded. In the end, that header by Davidson Sanchez may turn out to be one of the most important moments in the season because it's kept them, as you say, in a strong position. If they can get through January without being turned into whipping whipping boys, uh, hopefully, you know, they can they can kick on from there. Leggy is basically is not the word that Conte used, but that's the point that Conte was making after the Saints game. 
where he said that the fatigue was an issue and that kind of affected Spurs's quality in the final third and their ability to play that final pass. And I definitely think in the Saints game, they definitely they did de- certainly fade a lot. And the last, even though they were pretty good, I mean, they had some really good moments in the first hour or so. The last half hour in the Saints game, when they had Doherty and Gill on as kind of inverted wingbacks, they were just they were just putting the ball into the box over and over and over again. And they had an extra man as well. And so. they had an extra man with very little, you know, with no real quality. They were just chipping the ball in. Mm. It was getting headed away. We'll come back. We'll talk about the race for the top four, which looks like it's going to be, with all due respect to Manchester City's amazing football team, going to be the exciting part of the season in the Premier League. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Yeah, welcome back to another part of The View from the Lane. I'm Danny Kelly. Alongside me today, Charlie Eccleshare and Jack Pitt-Brook. The results over Christmas have left Spurs, as Charlie uh, pointed out, Jack, in a, a good place in the race for fourth. I mean, it's still so much football to be played. And who knows under what circumstances? I don't necessarily uh, mean with the pandemic. That will have its own effect. But just the, the, the fixture crush that's likely to affect all clubs, really, in the top half of the Premier League. Who's still in the race for fourth? Let's assume still that Chelsea, Liverpool and Manchester City are away and gone. It's Spurs, Arsenal, West Ham, Manchester United. That's it, is it? Yeah. I think so. so Wolves are three points behind Man United. You make a very fair point. So, uh, yeah, and Brighton but... only one more beyond that. So, But no, I wouldn't really expect them to be in the mix of fourth. The, the good news for Spurs is it's in Spurs' hands. You know, Spurs have got 20 games left. They don't even have to win all 20. They can hypothetically win 19 and still mathematically ensure fourth place. They've got a freebie. They've got a freebie. I'm totally if, settling for that 19 wins out of 20, to, by the way. All they've got to do is win 19 out of 20. If they win 19 out of 20, they'll finish second. I mean, they're basically... That would require Chelsea and Liverpool to drop very few points. If they win their games in hand, they're a point behind Chelsea. This is the reality, which feels incredible. But also, I do think um, a lot's being said about Yes, they will have a fixture pile-up. But that's true also of the teams they have to play who have the games in hand. And Spurs have a squad set up to play into comp- in Europe, whereas a lot of these teams don't. So say, like Burnley having a fixture pile-up and Spurs pile- having a p- fixture pile-up, that should play into Spurs' hands because Burnley have a small squad that isn't set up to be playing Wednesday, Saturday. So I don't think... It, I, and they'll have Romero back for, these game, for three games that he would have missed. So I think they're in a good position. Obviously, the old truism of you'd rather have the points in the bag etc but that they they are they, they have that margin for error they can go if they beat arsenal they go ahead of arsenal and have two games in hand on them also west ham are in the europa league and man united are in the champions league and yeah I mean, clearly i mean one of the stories i think at west ham season has been that making that adjustment to playing european football and premier league football at the same time which they've naturally found difficult because they don't have a lot of depth uh, Man United, as we saw yesterday, are a bit of a mess at the moment, and I think it's you know one, I think one of the other questions of the second half of this season is what will happen. It's like the comparison between Conte trying to teach the Tottenham players his style of football and Ragnick trying to teach the Man United players his style of football. But obviously, Conte's got what a sort of four week, six week head start over Ragnick, and seems to be making a better fist of it so far. So there's definitely reasons to be optimistic. I mean, there are obviously there are obviously differences between the two squads, but 
I think Ranić, if he's going to try and teach them a system that I've seen him um, rely on over the past decade and a half, he has got the wrong squad of footballers at Manchester mm. United. They are not designed for a Gagan press. And behind all this is still the ticking time bomb. And no disrespect to a great player um, of Cristiano Ronaldo. It was never the right signing football-wise. Culturally, it was a, a sign they had to make. Maybe it's just the Spurs fan in me. I think it might cost them that place in the in the Europa League. Or the Champions League, rather. We're already seeing at United what we saw at Juventus, which is that as many... I mean, Ronaldo can score as many goals as he wants. He's, he's made the team worse. Like, Ronaldo obviously made Juventus worse. They were a really good team before he showed up. And then, you know, they they declined over the course of his time there since he joined in 2018 in both Syria and in the Champions League. And precisely the same thing's happening at Manchester United. They had a really good way of playing last year. They were really good on the break, and now they're not because they got Ronaldo. Yeah. He was he was responsible though for the single greatest um, New Year's uh, message possibly of all time. Oh um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> remind pe- remind people, Charlie. Let me just get out the exact wording. So he posted a picture of him with his family. Yep. And said, 2021 is coming to an end. And it was far from being an easy year, despite my 47 goals scored Brilliant. across all competitions, which is just <laughs> genius. What's, what's so good about that is that normally with a famous footballer's Instagram account, the posts are so obviously done by somebody else that it doesn't yeah. reflect their authentic personality. And yet that specific post could not be more Cristiano yeah. Ronaldo. It's the ultimate essence of Cristiano Ronaldo is that nothing else matters in the world apart from how many goals he scored. And that's basically what we've seen over the last sort of four or five years of his career. I keep thinking, basically, with for Spurs to get in the top four, as, Con- as Conte said, you know, he- he's... He he's made this clear in in a slight mind gamesy sort of way, but you know he basically said for us to get in the top four, we need one of those big four teams to have a calamitous season, and you just keep hoping that United. I mean, United with that squad should be finishing in the top four. They just should, and you keep worrying. Now they've replaced Solskjaer. Is this going to be the moment? But it doesn't look like that's happening anytime soon, and I still fear that maybe it will eventually. And over the course of thirty eight games, they'll just have enough. You know, we saw that. Two years ago, with them and Chelsea, both were dysfunctional in parts, but still got top four. That is the worry, but they've certainly given Spurs a really good opportunity by by playing so badly and and like last night, dropping more points. Listeners to this podcast won't thank me for bringing up Arsenal, but I think they are very much part of this race. I mean, obviously, North London derby has now become another monstrous game, uh, not just for people who live in North London, but for the shape of the Premier League. For them, I think there's a... And again, it, it, this might seem ridiculous in in a few days' time. You know, when they if they win the game at, at, at the at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and all the rest of it. But Arsenal, how they respond because they were at times terrific against Manchester City, um, and they got the thick end of the refereeing there uh, uh, as well. I thought, and it was interesting that at the end they were absolutely applauded off the pitch by a normally pretty fickle Arsenal crowd. And whether they could come away feeling sorry for themselves or realising that they've just given the best team in the country a tremendous game will go a long way to working out how, the, how they come on and in, in this run in for, for the fourth place. Arsenal, possible fourth place finishers? Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think they are. I mean, again, it's hard to know because they're a young team. I mean, I've, a few of my friends who support Spurs have said they see some parallels with Arsenal now with, Pochettino's early Tottenham team mm-hmm. in kind of 2015-16 yep. you know and, and again similarly then I think a lot of people with that Spurs team were saying well yeah they look good but 
their Spurs and their unproven players. So surely it's going to go to shit fairly soon. But that team just kept getting better and better. And yes, they didn't win the league, but they became Champions League regular. Young players, the problem is we judge them on what they're doing and they're still improving. They can go through leaps and growth spurts, can't they? No, but also often young players are the the players you really do want. They're, you know, they're the ones who don't overthink things, that don't have the scar tissue that a lot of players have. And, and you know, in Arsenal's case, often it's the more experienced. You know, you don't see some of them, you don't see, you know, Saka and Smith Rowe doing stupid things. It's people like Granite Xhaka. And the weak links in their team are the are the, are the old strikers uh, and, and, exactly. and Granite Xhaka, who I've tried to understand Granite Xhaka and I just do not understand what is it you are trying to do, sir? What is it that you think that you're doing that's influencing this game positively? He's basically that score, you know, the fable about the scorpion and the frog. And the, the when the frog's carrying the scorpion across the river and the scorpion can't help but sting him, which means they both die. And he said, why, why have you done that? He says, well, it's in my nature. And that's Granite Xhaka. But, you know, instead of a frog and a scorpion, it's Bernardo Silva twisting him inside now. He can't help but sort of give him a little shove just to signpost it to the ref. Yeah. But anyway, Spurs fans don't want to hear about Granite no, Xhaka. But what, what I think, you, you mentioned there about how important that Davinson Sanchez goal was. I do think the injury times of the two games on the weekend mm. carried a three-point swing for Spurs. You know, that, that, that day could very easily, I mean, could easily have ended with an Arsenal win. But even all the Xhaka stuff having happened could have ended with a draw for both teams. And that massively changes the complexion of the table. Instead, obviously, Arsenal can see the very late winner, Spurs score a very late winner. And I th- and those three points, I mean, I'd be surprised if the margin between those two teams was more than that come the end of the season. Yeah, and West Ham, to finish this discussion on the, on the, on the rivals for Spurs, is obviously well-earned fourth place and Champions League qualification. Um, you're right to point out West Ham lost on Boxing Day, Jack, but... They've come back and they, they're still playing, even though they've had some, some important injuries, particularly in their defence. They're still playing football of a pretty high, high standard, I think, particularly when, when Antonio is fit, everything else seems to click into place. Yeah, yeah. I, I really like watching them when they mm, play. Yeah. They play. They play really with such kind of energy and enthusiasm. Uh, Antonio is obviously hugely important to them. The Rice, Palace game, Rice is probably, brilliant. The Palace game could have gone either way and Rice is just getting better and better by the week. They're kind of in that situation where don't know how far they can sustain a top four push and a Europa League push at the same time. I wonder whether one of those two things might have to fall by the wayside for the other to to succeed. But, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how much longer they can keep it going. All right. So there's, there's, the, there's the four teams. We now have my least favourite part of the football season when the transfer window is open. Interestingly, I think except for Newcastle United, supporters of Spurs, Jack, might be the ones most trembling in anticipation at this transfer window, a combination of the idea that Conte has to get what he wants, otherwise he'll walk, and that piece of mathematics which showed that Spurs have a £400 million headroom in the financial fair play. I know Spurs fans who are very excited by the prospect of the next 27 days. Well, they're trying to do a bit. You know, they are trying to get people out. You know, mm-hmm. don't know how much longer Matt Doherty's going to be there. I don't know whether Deli Ali's done enough in the Liverpool and Southampton games to ensure, I mean, to change the mind of the of the club on him, given that he was, you know, available for most likely a loan transfer. In terms of ins, they're looking for an, an attacking right wing back who can give them a little bit more in the final third than Emerson can. The Watford game is a perfect example of why that's what they need. I think that they'd also be interested in another forward. Um, that's something that they've wanted for a while, you know, to take a bit of the goal-scoring burden away from Kane and Son and Lucas. Uh, I don't know where they are, the way, where they are with that at the moment. I think it might come down a little bit to how much money they can make in terms of outgoings, but they are trying to do a bit. 
do you want to add anything to that, uh, Charlie? Is there anything else they should be doing? No, I mean th- those are the areas. Because people people will be scream screaming at their mobile phones now, going, "Hang on." So you really want to carry on the rest of the season when there's a Champions League place up for grabs with, say, Hoiberg and Skip in centre midfield. But but the thing with January is there's no point making signings unless they're the right players. Sure. And if let's say that's an area where they do think they require some surgery, it is better to wait. Because you can't bring someone, unless you're going to bring someone in on a loan, but even then those are quite hard to get right. Sure. So there's no point bringing someone in now that's a kind of yeah he's sort of an okay option he might improve us a bit because you'll then you'll then have that player who you then might want to upgrade on in the summer but you can't move them on that easily so i don't think they'll be panicked into making signings at this point because as we've said they are in a strong position and i do get the argument that there's so much at stake financially with the top four why not just absolutely go for it but those those right players still have to be available for you to do that what about Hugo Lloris's contract? I mean, this may just be a matter of passing interest to me. I think he's been Spurs' best player this season in terms of consistency, at least. The problem, I guess, is 30 players in their mid-30s, what kind of contract do you give them? But the very fact that he's allowed it, Jack, to run down suggests that he is at least looking at his options. Yeah, I think that's true. That said, uh, Conte's been asked about it in press conferences a few times recently and has always sounded pretty relaxed and positive about mm-hmm. it. So that he hoped they can get to a solution soon, uh, which makes me which makes me feel as if he will sign a new contract and hopefully they can get it announced uh, in the next few months because they won't want it dragging on too long. But I wouldn't be too worried. I mean, it might come back to bite me, but personally I wouldn't be too worried about the possibility of him leaving because I, I, I don't imagine that's going to happen. Yeah, this is something I wrote about about like a month ago for uh, David Ornstein's column that, you know, there was kind of quiet confidence amongst those uh, involved in the deal that something would happen. Obviously, that situation can change, but that was, uh, you know, back in December. And the idea was that, you know, the talks would intensify now. And I do think the picture has slightly changed. And Stu James wrote, I think it was Stu James wrote a good piece on this, that it used to be that, you know, a player would get to January and that would be like, shock horror they're going to go they can talk to anyone but that's happening more and more now and I think players you know clubs are holding their nerve a bit more because they know that every other club is in not a great state financially either so your players aren't going to get poached straight away uh, as soon as the as soon as it's January the 1st Spurs play in the first of their trio of fixtures against the current champions of Europe in the Carabao Cup on Wednesday. I hope, Jack, you're going to take some of the fear out of my preparations for this game because you want to talk about a couple of, before we get on to the actual game, a couple of games against against Chelsea from the recent past. Yeah, so the, the fact of this fixture had got me thinking earlier because it reminded me so much of two things. The first is one of the great Tottenham-Chelsea games I think of the modern era, which was five years ago today. Ah. That is the 4th of January 2017. Uh, Tottenham's famous 2-0 win against Antonio Conte's Chelsea at the old White Hart Lane. One of the great, one of the last great games at White Hart Lane with those two Deli Alley headers uh, ending Chelsea's 13-game winning streak. I mean, it, it was, uh, even to, I, I, even as a non-Tottenham fan, I found it incredibly stirring. So Two Deli Alley headers from two Christian Eriksen chips. There was two different things that we no longer have there, Christian Eriksen's creativity and Deli Alley's unerring instinct for, for a goal. I think those were, 
I think he went to double figures for goals with the, uh, you know, and that was only in January in, in that game. Yeah, he'd scored seven goals in four games mm. after those two, and was at that point. And Pochettino called him afterwards uh, the most important English player of his generation. It, it, I think this was maybe. I think this might be the best performance under Pochettino. I was going to say, well, yeah, is this the apogee of that Pochettino team? I mean, beating that Chelsea team who were on that 13-game winning run who seemed unbeatable and Spurs played them off the park, really. I mean, they were so much better than on the day. It was just before Rose got injured as well. So it was basically yeah. the end of that Rose-Walker partnership where they were just pinning teams back. It was the peak of that team playing a kind of 3-5-2, Rose and Walker destroying everyone down the wings. I read back the re- the report that I wrote about it and it was the, the thing that most struck me about it at the time was the, was the power of Spurs. And they like Chelsea were a big, strong team, and Tottenham just dominated them, and they were so mm. clever and so good. And then, even better than that, was the fact that you know six months before, obviously, Tottenham had been tuning up against Chelsea, and then Battle of Stamford Bridge happened. They lost their heads a bit. Whereas this time, they were tuning up against Chelsea, and they they kind of held them at arm's length the rest. That of the game. performance, though, the two 0 victory at White Hart Lane, was a direct result of the Battle of Stamford Bridge. All those bookings that Spurs has got, and of course they lost their heads and all the rest. I, I don't believe one word that it was that that was a great Spurs performance because for the first time in a generation they'd stood up to Chelsea and said, "No, mm. you will not overpower us. You will not kick us out of this game. We'll kick you." Even though, it, you know, it cost Spurs. Leicester would win the title by a mile by that stage. Don't worry about that. And it was the the psychological markers they put down at Stamford Bridge that night that's allowed them to beat Chelsea six months later at Wise Hart Lane. Says a revisionist historian. <laughs> yeah. I do remember after, after that, after this game, the, the 2-0 win, uh, Moussa Dembele in the mix zone afterwards being asked by journalists, Moussa, do you think you've exercised the ghost of Stamford Bridge? And Dembele, you know, Dembele, incredibly smart guy, speaks brilliant English, wasn't familiar with the phrase exercise the ghost of. And said, I'm sorry, I don't really understand. And basically just repeatedly being asked the same question over and over again. That's one of my favourite subgenres of questions is like, is English idioms being put to English foreign managers being put or players? To foreign managers. And it's like, like their language skills are incredible, yeah. but come on, that's like, not yeah. an easy thing It's to like do. when people say, Antonio, does this stand you in good stead? Yeah. <laughs> And um, was that the two Chelsea games you wanted to mention? No, so the, the the other one that I wanted to mention actually is a League Cup semi-final, which was only three years ago. Tottenham-Chelsea League Cup semis over two legs, which obviously Chelsea won the second leg at Stamford Bridge on penalties after a two-all draw. But the reason that the, the reason that this is interesting to me is that, the I don't know if you remember, the first leg, so this is 8th of January 2019, so almost three years ago, Tottenham won 1-0 at Wembley. In the first leg and they'd won at this point it was their 15th win out of 18 so it kind of felt like they were flying mm. spurs and yet my main memory of that game uh with harry kane scored a penalty which had been awarded by by var was it was the first time i thought hold on a second i don't really think spurs look right here i think something's a bit wrong oh. they looked because chelsea dominated them in the second half of that game and tottenham in a quite in a way which was not a familiar thing to see at that point looked completely exhausted and had no energy left and as Chelsea kind of pushed them back and didn't actually, you know, Chelsea obviously didn't get the second goal, but then one two one at Stamford Bridge and one on pens. But to me, that always stands out as a game. It's a, maybe a little bit of a turning point given mm. how their league, certainly their domestic form, got worse and worse over the second half of the eighteen nineteen season. Well, that was that. Yeah, that was exactly the point at which basically they then entered into like almost relegation form up until the point where Pochettino was sacked and they didn't Pretty keep much, an away yeah. clean sheet from New Year's Day. 
2019 till January 20th or something. Yeah, they're, uh, they're a waveform, which is what I always uh, judge really good teams by. I fell off a cliff, if you recall, as well, about that start. But that's what yeah. I mean with that clean sheet yeah. drought. And and they weren't winning games away no. either. Well, thanks for that, Jack, for, for, for first setting us up with that brilliant memory of the 2-0 win in the old White Hart Lane. God bless it. And then bring us back down to earth. Because as I said at the top of this podcast, Every game against Chelsea appears to me in recent times to have been, had inordinate importance beyond the local derby status. And all three of these that Spurs have got coming up um, will go a long way to saying what kind of season this will turn out. Just one last thing on that. that uh, I know a few Spurs fans, one of their reservations or one of the things that still irritates them about the Pochettino era was that the Cups weren't taken seriously enough. Obviously, this one was an instance where it was taken seriously, but they just didn't win in the end and they would have played City in the final so who knows they would have won the the competition but how, how important I mean Danny as a, as a mm. you know we, we've we've spoken a lot about your love for the Europa Conference League yeah. over the course of the season but would you would you take winning the Carabao Cup over top four for instance where, where do you put Carabao Cup no I, I wouldn't if I had a choice between finishing fourth and getting the Champions League or winning the Carabao Cup I'd go for um, the finishing fourth having said that um, as somebody who has seen Spurs play in Quite a lot of cup finals now, um, initially winning them all, and then more latterly not winning them. I do want Spurs to win the trophy, not just for my own sake, but mostly for young Spurs fans. You know, of course, you don't see them at the grounds um, because it's £100 to watch Premier League football, but they're out there, and it just must be difficult to be associated with a club that has pretensions. Um, but never actually wins these trophies. And just for, for those people, I would like them to, to win the Carabao Cup. And of course, the answer to your question, Charlie, let's be honest, I want both things to happen. But if I had to, yeah. to prioritise them, uh, because of the insane way that football is set up, um, I'd, I'd go for finishing fourth. But I do want them to win the semi-final, trust me. Would you rather they won the league game in January or the semi-final? Um, I think uh, the important league game here is the one against Arsenal. And I hate to put any more pressure on what is already, you know, a, a very, very intense fixture. But if they can win that one against Arsenal, then the one against Chelsea could become that bonus match that we talked about earlier in the podcast. Could be, but it would also be a big statement if they did go and win in the league at Stamford Bridge. Yes, but I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I've not yet gone through the looking glass, Charlie. And, and, and the gap between Spurs and Chelsea is still very significant. If they could, if they could escape from that league game without being defeated, I would take that as a real step forward. I mean, don't forget, we're, we're still a, we're less than two months away from those latter performances under under Nuno. I mean, we're you're talking about beating Not Chelsea. Not quite. We're it's a bit, an, it, just we're, over. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an enormous thought that they might even be in the shape to do that. Uh, the other missing ingredient here, sorry, is how much is Conte going to care about the Carabao Cup? I mean, the, you know, obviously Pochettino in his day didn't care that much about the League Cup uh, and wanted to focus on the other competitions. He was and, foolish, know, though. He was foolish because that became the stick with which he was eventually most did, yeah, regularly beaten, wasn't he? But I don't know whether... My, I'd, look, it's, let's wait and see what sort of teams that Conte picks this week. It'd be interesting to see if he how much he's going to rotate. Is he going to try and take advantage of, of Chelsea? I, I genuinely don't know. I'm really curious to find out. But this is going to be one of the big topics this month, I think, is how much does Conte really care about the League Cup? But I think as well, the fact they've got Morecambe on the weekend should help in this mm -hmm. regard because just rest everyone on the weekend. He'll have a bigger decision to make, I guess, with the second leg because then Spur then Arsenal will be on the horizon. But Arsenal play a day later against Liverpool. So I feel like he might go quite big 
Um, so do you reckon full, full strength this week and then rotate for, for Morecambe? I feel... yeah. Oh, yeah, I think, he'll, I think he'll rest everyone pretty much for Morecambe. I think he'll make wholesale changes. I reckon... I reckon it won't be more than one or two changes this this week. He hasn't changed the team. He doesn't change the team because he's trying to get them to play a certain way. Um, and occasional COVID scares and you know red zone training markers. He doesn't change the team. I expect he'll play the three games against Chelsea and against Arsenal, a stronger team as he can put out. Um, and as COVID right, with allowing and, as well. And, yes, say. and as you rightly say, against Morecambe, uh, you two should bring your boots um, <laughs> just in case you are required. Um, I will end the podcast by noting um, that uh, Son has uh, been voted Asian Footballer of the Year, I think for the sixth time, but for the fifth successive year. And he celebrated this by uh, his perform- performance at Watford, his worst since his early days uh, of arriving from the Bundesliga. Got the assist. He got the assist. He did get it. Yeah. It's, it's a- that was the one moment of quality that was needed. Listen, thank you both very, very much indeed. Thank you all for listening. I'll say it again one more time before we want to get back to the drudgery of the actual winter. Happy New Year to you all. And don't forget that if you're not already subscribed to The Athletic, you can read, well, you can read uh, Jack's story about, about Emerson Royal and all the other of our articles about Spurs and anything else on the site by going to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. And right now you can get 33%, a whole third of the full subscription. We'll be back on Thursday, hopefully screaming about a victory. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.